Dr. Jeff Curry is Global Head of Commodities Research at Goldman Sachs, where he has held various positions since 1996. His research helps the firm and its clients with corporate risk management programs, short- and long-term commodity investment strategies, and asset allocation. Today, he will discuss the energy markets, recent trends in the oil industry, what can be learned from the reopening of China's economy, and developments that have arisen from the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's listen in. I'm delighted uh, to be able to host just for today. I was asked a few weeks ago to come up with somebody who might be able to talk knowledgeably about what was going on in the energy business. And the first person who came to my mind was a gentleman by the name of Jeff Curry, uh, who was our speaker today. Jeff joined Goldman in uh, 1996 and he became a managing director in 2000 before being named Global Head of Commodities Research in 2006, um, which, which he is today. He's responsible for conducting research on commodity market dynamics in the context of corporate risk management programs, short and long-term commodity investment strategies, and asset allocation. He's also a member of the Growth Markets Executive Committee and lots of other things. Um, I first met Jeff, I think it was in 2004, when Jeff published a piece called The Revenge of the Old Economy, in which he predicted a long-term secular bull market in, in the oil industry, which was then operating at capacity. Um, in 2000, and as, and as I followed Jeff in the 16 years since then, He's basically been right at every major turn in the commodity and energy markets. Uh, and to my benefit, I've listened to some of those changes. And to my disbenefit, I had a different point of view. Uh, I remember after the 2014 oil crisis, um, Jeff met with a bunch of institutional investors and advised all of us in the private equity business on energy just to go to the beach because it was going to be a very difficult five or six years. Uh, and I wish I had taken that advice. I'd at least have a suntan to show for all the work in the past six years. <laughs> uh, I asked Jeff really to talk about his current views on what's going on in the energy markets, um, give you a little uh, insight into what happened recently with the collapse of zero, talk about how COVID has affected what is, has, has been a long-term series of secular trends in the business. And he said he would do that and along the way might even touch on golden inflation. So with that, let me turn it over to Jeff. And he'll speak for maybe 15, 20 minutes, and then we can ask whatever questions are on people's mind. Great. Thank you, Howard. <clears throat> I apologize for it being dark here. I'm in London and it's past, you know, I have sun, usually have sunlight here. So anyway, well, what I thought I would do was just touch a little bit about how we got here and then talk about the rebalancing that we're beginning to see take place and then talk about what does it mean in terms of recovery? And, and what I'm gonna draw upon a lot <clears throat> is what we've learned about China in terms of how it's recovered. And so starting with you know, the, the oil, and I wanna just make some broad points about oil, is what does oil actually do for us? It creates social contact and it creates globalization. I mean, that's the core of what oil does. In fact, what's interesting here is all the unsustainable carbon-based industries are the ones that are getting decimated here. Um, because ultimately what they provide are 
um, that contact. Just take like fresh fruit. It requires aircraft from Chile and migrant workers, both things that we're, we're cutting out right now. And so when we look at oil in particular, <clears throat> what are the two lines of defense? You're stopping social contact and you're reducing globalization or deglobalizing, both of which are having a severe impact on oil demand to the point that oil demand is being impacted two and a half times greater than that of GDP. We think global GDP from you know, the beginning of this, which was January 23rd, by the way, it's not a coincidence that Xi Jinping announced this on the eve of January 23rd when the Chinese New Year weekend was on January 24th, because basically you had 20% of the world shutting down um, you know, in terms of having no activity for the next two and a half weeks. It gave him a perfect shield to deal with this. Unfortunately, the West didn't have that same shield when this hit. Um, but from January 23rd to the trough, G global GDP um, was down roughly around 16%. When we look at oil demand, it was down roughly 30 plus percent. Um, again, this whole idea 2x what the GDP is down. Um, you know, to put this in perspective, the biggest hit we'd ever seen before in oil demand was during the 08, 09 crisis, you lost around 3 million barrels per day. This was 30 million barrels per day, 10x. For GDP, it's 5.3 times bigger than anything we'd ever seen before. Um, the impact of that, obviously, was to create a tsunami of oil. It just worked its way through the global distribution system. And it overwhelmed the ability to store it, process it, and hold any of this oil and as a result, it ended up testing and breaching the capacity to, of the infrastructure to deal with it. <clears throat> and when you think about what was the most vulnerable markets in the world, they were the ones that were on land, ones like WTI. Um, you think about WTI in Cushing, Oklahoma, I like to point out it prices 500 miles from the water. Brent, <clears throat> on the other hand, is a waterborne crew, prices in the Shetland Islands, it's about 500 meters from the water. So 500 meters versus 500 miles. Which one do you think is going to run into congestion first? The one that's inland. That was WTI. And once you think about, it's like a driving down the freeway and it just hits congestion and stops. And when it hit that congestion and stop, what's the value of that oil? Zero. In fact, here's the key point in all commodities. You don't want to shut in because once you shut in, it has real costs. That's the economics behind a negative price. You're willing to pay somebody to take that oil away from you to avoid having to shut in. Now, what made it more extreme, and it got far more negative than what any of us ever would have thought, was that you had investors in there that were not paying attention to what was going on. It was a relatively well-flagged event. Um, and as a result, you ended up with investors trying to get out of a position which drove it to a minus 37. But I wouldn't read too much to it. I think the main conclusion here is we just had a traffic jam, the system got to a gridlock, it came to a screeching halt, and the prices had to go negative. So that brings us up to where we are right now, where we're now shutting in production, and we're bringing supply down in line with demand. And you think about this, once you've breached the, all the storage capacity in the world, which we pretty much have, you have a situation where no matter what, supply has to equal demand at these lower levels because you can't run a surplus barrel of oil. This is very different than metals. Metals, you can 
you, there's nothing to force that correction. Think about aluminum smelter. I can just stack the aluminum ingots outside the plant to the moon. There's nothing to force me to stop. Oil has that natural correction into it because it can't live outside the infrastructure. It's like electricity. Electricity goes directly from production to consumption immediately because you can't store it. It's the most volatile asset on the planet Earth. Natural gas is the second most volatile because it has to live inside a hermetically sealed pipeline and storage facilities. And number three is oil. And that's where we at. It's why oil can bounce around. Today, yesterday, it was up 15, 20 percent. It's because we've hit that wall. So now we're bringing supply down in line with demand. What does the demand recovery look like? Let's start with um, what we have learned from China. What we have learned from China is that the manufacturing, construction, and infrastructure have led the way. Why? Because these are activities we can do with social distancing measures put in place. What has lagged are services in consumer goods. Um, even though the consumer goods have lagged, um, what we have seen is much more of a V-shaped recovery. Now, in terms of looking at um, the uh, impact on commodity prices, you look at steel, copper, iron ore, those commodities are at higher levels than they were before this all began. Why is because construction is being pulled forward. It's, you know, there's this whole idea of lost demand versus deferred demand. Construction and things like that, you can make up. Now, when we look at oil demand, what we find is that there's three components of it that were lost. There was the commuting component, there was the jet component, and then there was the industrial component. The industrial one is coming back fine. What we learned from China, most of the commuting demand is going to come back fine. It comes back even more because nobody wants to get into a subway or into a train. It's the jet component that lags. Here's a stat for you. In 2001, after September 11th, the government subsidized the airline industry with $5 billion. You know what that number was last week, week before last? $58 billion, more than 10 times larger. Um, they're going to have a very difficult time coming back, and that's what the lessons. I tend to think the leisure is going to come back. I can tell you here in, in London, um, we have a three-day weekend starting on this Friday. Everybody wants to get out of a plane and go somewhere. Um, we're going to find out if they're going to let us out of here soon. Um, but, you know, the point there is that, yes, you'll probably get the leisure component back, but I don't think the business component is going to come back. Like everybody goes, hey, this, this whole Zoom thing, it works. I don't need to get in a plane and fly somewhere to see somebody. So that part, what we've learned from China, is more of a persistent loss. So the key point here is, you know, there's going to be a small amount that is going to be persistently lost. We don't think you get back up to pre-crisis levels until into um, 2022. Um, but, but let's talk about the supply story. This is the key point, and I think this is the main reason that I think Howard wants me to come and talk to all of you. So demand will be V-shaped, but supply will be L-shaped. Both are down at these reduced levels right now. The difference is once you shut in a well, you do damage to it. Um, and then second of all, this was an unpopular industry to begin with, not only due to ESG reasons, but very poor returns. So there wasn't a lot of capital flowing to it. Um, and then the third reason, is that the CapEx has been shut down in this industry. And the thing about when you shut down the CapEx, you have natural decline rates, it means the production just declines. It's very different than a metals and mining operation. Metals and mining 
it's consistent over time. It's a manufacturing process. Here, you shut down those wells, um, you'll end up with a natural decline rate. It's an organic deposit. You put that together, you're gonna struggle to bring back supply on as demand begins to recover. You're already seeing evidence of it. That's part of the reason why we rallied as much as we did yesterday. So when we think about um, the outlook starting going forward, um, then you throw in the production cuts that were being implemented by the OPEC countries. This market is going to be able to draw all that inventory that it built up in very quick order. We think you'll be normalized by 2Q of next year, backed up to $55 a barrel, your normalized price. I think you'll trade there for about 15 seconds on your way to $70 a barrel or more. We're teeing ourselves up for a significant problem on the energy side. Then we overlay the ESG issues on top of that. Um, you know, you look at it, the idea was that we had this, this um, fossil fuel-based industry that was gonna be sustainable until we could make the energy transition. We have now done permanent damage to it and it's not gonna be able to withstand. You're gonna have to invest in it again. We're, not, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars that need to be reinvested in it. We do not have the technology to make the energy transition on the transportation side. EVs don't work. You know, you look at EVs, we produced 1.5 million of them last year. The total number of EVs on the road, 5 million. Do you know how many petroleum-based cars there are in the world? 1.3 billion on the road. We're not replacing those tomorrow. Nor, here's a stat for you. Tesla and Apple use 30 Tesla is 30% of the world's lithium market. Apple is 20. 50% of the world's lithium is used by two companies. There's no possible way we're going to create EVs to solve this problem. We're going to have to invest in oil. So that brings you, you know, where our target is 70 at the end of next year. Um, but I do want to emphasize is that it, when we look further forward, is that we need to get capital to this sector. But one, the investors have lost too much money. They have no interest to go into it. Two, the ESG is going to make it very difficult to be able to harness capital to go out and drill for fossil fuels one more time. And three, the only possible way you're going to get capital to grow the supply base is through the oil price itself. So that's, that's the story on oil. I just want to quickly talk about gold because we get a lot of questions on gold. Um, when we think about gold is the word debasement. Where does the word debasement comes from? It comes from the Roman era when you take base metals like copper and put them into the precious metals and debase your precious metals. Um, and so when we think about gold, gold is the perfect hedge against debasement. And what are we doing? We just printed three, actually the treasury just borrowed $3 trillion. Actually the numbers are suggested could be as high as 4 trillion right now. That put against a $22 trillion US economy, that's some serious debasement. And so when we think about gold, it's a hedge against that. Now the question is, does it devalue the dollar? Right now the answer is no, because people are very concerned um, about dollar liquidity, but it starts to have an impact when we start to look at these markets um, on a 12, 18 month horizon. And I think the biggest question people have right now is, is this going to be inflationary? Obviously not in the very near term due to the fact that you have 20, 30 billion, 30 million people that are unemployed. But let's say as they get reemployed, the economy gets on stable footing. 
Will this create an inflationary backdrop? The answer to that really is the question, what is the marginal propensity to consume? When we put the nearly $4 trillion into the market between 08 and 09, it went into bank liquidity. And the bank liquidity went into savings into people like ourselves on this call. It did not make it to the lower income people. And the key reason for that is that the bank lending mechanism was broken due to Dodd-Frank. And because it went into wealth, what is the marginal propensity to consume out of wealth? The answer is 3%. You put a trillion dollars into the system, how much spending are you gonna get out of it? 30 billion. Let me repeat that. A trillion dollar gives you 30 billion. What is different about this time around? The marginal propensity consume is going to is up towards a 90% with the world's poor versus the, the rich at three. You put that money into this this time around. So let's take in 08, 09. You put four trillion in there, you got $120 billion of spending over four years. You put, you know, right now three trillion and it goes into the lower income, their capacity constrained on their ability to spend. It's going to get spent. And by the way, M2 doesn't disappear. It doesn't get burned up or vanished. Those that are not spending right now are saving. Savings is going up. This capital is not going anywhere. But the thing that makes it very different today than at any other point in time, it's getting into the hands of the people that will spend it, which then creates an environment that becomes far more inflationary than anything that we have seen in the past. I know I'm out there on a limb making these, these arguments, but I want to ask the following question. Why did we get inflation in the late 60s? It didn't happen because of the oil price shock. It already was started well before 73. The answer is you had a war on poverty. And you look at income inequality, it was the lowest we'd ever seen in 1968. And as you put that money and that war on poverty into the hands of the lower income, the marginal propensity to consume was much higher. And that's what triggers the, the, the inflation. And so when we think about what's different about this, we haven't seen this in you know, going back 40 plus years to see that the stimulus getting into the hands of the lower income, which is what creates that ability to spend and sets the stage for a much higher inflation probability. Uh, we like gold, our target on gold is $1,800 an ounce. I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Jeff. Um, while people digest that, um, I forgot to mention that Jeff is Dr. Curry. I only found that out today. and. I think we just discovered why he was got his doctorate at the University of Chicago. <laughs> good, good old monetary theory there. Um, I have a question for Jeff that I've asked him before. Maybe this time I'll, I'll remember the answer. Was when the Saudis and the Russians declared war on each other in January, and oil prices went down thirty dollars. That was a trillion dollar tax cut for the global consumers. The next day, the markets collapsed. It didn't make any sense to me. I would have thought that that degree of stimulus would have been good for the economy, for the world's capital markets turned out to be bad. Can you help us understand why it was perverse in that sense? What happened? When you think, uh, about, that, yeah. when you think about an oil price, and let's take the global economy, it's a wealth transfer. It's not, has, doesn't make anybody better off or worse off. It's transferring wealth from consumers to producers. And when the wealth that sits in the producers because they have a high propensity to save, the sovereign wealth funds, the sovereign wealth funds create liquidity and they create credit around the world. 
And so when we think about what happens in this environment, and we saw this in the 2000s, when oil prices go up, you get credit. And think about what happened immediately when the oil prices went down. The Central Bank of Russia had to start bringing in capital. You bid up the dollar, you create a dollar shortage, and the capital leaves the system and comes back into those, those central banks. So when Russia's flush with cash, Saudi Arabia's flush with cash, that capital becomes a mechanism that creates credit in lending and creates a growth multiplier. When you take that capital away, you take that growth away. And so as we saw those prices start to tumble, the dollar liquidity became a problem. The dollar jumped up. And on March 23rd, this, the Fed stepped in and dumped a lot of liquidity, unlimited um, you know, liquidity into the system. That's when actually a great point I like to say is when you have a liquidity crisis, gold is a liability. When you have a solvency crisis, gold is an asset. Gold was a liability in that time period because the whole world was dealing with liquidity problems until the Fed stepped in and did unlimited QE. So I think the key point here is when we think about declining oil prices is that it has a substantial impact on global liquidity through the mechanisms of these big sovereign wealth funds. And also there's a high correlation between all goods in oil prices. Oil is just simply the benchmark for all traded goods, whether if it's copper, iron ore, oil, pick your, and the reason why, think about this, if oil is correlated to the dollar, because the dollar goes up and down with the amount sitting in these sovereign wealth funds, and you have the price of Barbie dolls in South Korea, they're just stable, and we know there's a negative correlation between dollar and oil in the South Korean won, then what does the price of the Barbie dolls look like? It looks just like the price of oil. And that's the reason why you'll get capital going up and down and all the world's prices go up and down with the price of oil. Thank you, Jeff. As, as usual, you see things at levels way beyond the rest of us. First question comes from Tim Sloan. Tim, welcome. Nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you, Howard. And Jeff, thanks very much for uh, your comments and joining us from uh, from London. Uh, I wanted to follow up on your uh, observations about storage and, and really focus more on the short term. Um, when when uh, do you imagine that we're going to be through the, the storage shortages that we're seeing right now uh, at Cushing or in the Gulf? You're sitting on top of it right now. The rally yesterday is because of that rebalanced mark is now the rebalanced market is in your line of sight. You know, we're within a couple of weeks away on a global basis. There's two factors. One, we saw a massive number of shut-ins over the weekend. I mean, the numbers were big. You know, Conoco, all of the big players, two to three hundred thousand a pop. Exxon, a hundred thousand barrels a pop. Um, you're now at a point where. That again, that supply is coming down. So for the month of May, we think demand's going to be down 17.5 million barrels per day. Ten of that's going to be achieved of um, you know reduction in supply off those OPEC numbers. And then we would argue you already had about three in place due to economic conditions going into May 1st. And we think the reason why the market rallied yesterday is there's enough of evidence from those players I just talked about. They've hit the wall such that you're going to end up with a rebalanced market. You look at the satellite data globally, it suggests that the inventory bills were running in April 25 million barrels per day. By last week, slowed to six or probably somewhere in that two to three down. Um, I would tend to think you're going to go into a deficit market within the next two to three weeks. 
that's what the market's trying to trade right now. Great, thank, thank you. you. Um, Ryan Bergamini, did, did I pronounce that right? Bergamini, yes, thank you. Close enough, right? Yes, and um, the, I feel like I'm in an economics undergraduate class. I'm really enjoying this. I understand the marginal propensity to consume, but my question is, well, when does that consumption begin? And here, aren't we just replacing money for folks? Like there, there's no new money coming in for them or, or, or is there? Does that make sense? You, you, you're absolutely right that, and in fact, here's an interesting stat for you. We're actually replacing more money than what their income is. So they're net better off. The whole system is gonna be better off than what they were during this time period, assuming the recovery looks similar to what we saw in China. Now the key point here is how much damage you do to the balance sheets and how much damage you do to, uh, to the industries in this interim. The one thing I pick up, whether you're a blue state or a red state, is that people believe we have taken too much business risk and not enough medical risk. Um, that's just the fact of the point. You didn't run out of hot, you didn't really slam into those hospital constraints. And that's both sides of the Atlantic. Here in Europe, they feel the same way, as well as in, in the US. So I would tend to think at this point, they're gonna, you're gonna see a rebalancing of this towards more medical risk and less business risk, which means you probably get some of the stuff up and running faster. Um, we were we're going to find out here in the UK, um, you know, sometime in the next either tomorrow or the next day. We're supposed to have been told tomorrow because there's a holiday on Friday, but they say they're going to wait till Sunday. They don't want everybody leaving the country over the, the three day holiday. But I would tend to think you got a higher probability of seeing that they're going to reduce the business risk and kick up the medical risk everywhere in the world. Now, the, if these people are back to work and they follow a pattern similar to what we saw in China. You're still going to, that. the thing point here about the M2 I was making, those who have jobs, which are still the vast majority, are saving. Their savings are going up. Mm -hmm. And you're giving all this new capital to that group. They don't really have anything to spend on it right now. When you open this lockdown, they're going to have things to spend. And then you figure out what happens to the savings for the people that do have it. The question is, are they going to spend more out of that than what they have in the past? We'll find out on that. But typically, when you look at savings, when it gets drawn down, you typically get an inflationary impact because it has to go somewhere. There's an adding up constraint. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not saying we're going to get any out of control inflation or anything like that. But I tend to think that, um, you know, the situation here is teed up in a very different way than what we saw in 0809. Because in 0809, all of this went simply onto bank balance sheets to create bank liquidity. We were dealing with a financial crisis then. And I think we just, the world has forgotten how you deal with fiscal policy because we haven't seen it done in so long. And this is classic textbook helicopter money that we, you know, we read about when we were kids. It's actually being implemented right now. Thank, Thank you, you, Jeff. Just Ron, to put Jeff's comment in perspective, the US GDP is going to be declining about $700 billion a month. And we have $2.8 trillion in relief. And where I grew up, 2.8 is a lot more than 700, right? So that's the that's why his comment that we're putting a lot more money into the system than the system's taken out bears some conversation. I want to do uh, Tom Fish will do next, and then I'll have a, then Van Taylor from Congress has joined, and I'm going to ask a question which may be of interest to him. 
Tom? Yes. Uh, hold on. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Jeff, thank you again for being on this call. Uh, you've got some people on the on the call from Houston, Texas, who are taking notes as fast as you can say them. So appreciate that. Um, if you're in charge of U.S. energy policy, what do we need to do to retain our uh, oil and energy independence so that we don't go backwards? Or do we need oil and energy independence? You know, there's only one thing you can possibly do which has been done make foreigners cut production if you want to do it. And Trump cut that deal with those OPEC countries and he used the biggest sticks he could on the OPEC countries, i.e. military bases, and from my understanding, potentially use sanctions against the Russians. They cut. That is the cheapest, most efficient way as a U.S. entity to get uh, energy policy done. Um, so it, it worked. In terms of anything else, you just, you're opening up a can of worms you don't want to go near. Uh, it will create quotas, create inefficient allocation of capital, tariffs are bad, all of the, every other option is bad, and I, I, and I would suggest steering away from it. Um, so the one option that is by far the best is cut production, was executed, executed well, um, was done through, you know, just outright threats. Uh, this is my speculation, I don't know, but my conversations with the likes of the Saudis and the Russians and everybody else out there suggest that's what was done, that's what I would have done. So, um, you know, you've got the best policy you could have implemented at the lowest cost. The question is, um, when does Trump let up on them and let them start to increase production? Because if I were Saudi Arabia, if I were Russia and I were Exxon, I were any big player, I didn't want anybody messing with this. I would want all the likes of those small independent EMP producers in the U.S. decimated. Um, and so, you know, if I'm looking at this and I'm one of those players, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that they're gone. Um, I don't want to get into the energy independence because that would be a price you'd have to pay. Ultimately, I tend to think the big players are going to win here, and I'm sorry if I'm offending anybody here. The returns in this sector were abysmal. Nobody wanted to put a dollar into this. This You had a bunch of small companies that were being protected by OPEC. Now, OPEC realizes this was a mistake. They cut production in December 2016, supported prices at $60 a barrel that was unsustainable. Capital flowed into this sector was misallocated and created incredibly low returns. We estimate it cost the OPEC countries $220 billion per year in lost revenue. It cost U.S. equity and debt holders $1.3 trillion. Catastrophic, disastrous policy error. They did it once before in the 1980s, and it cost them dearly, and they did it again this time. When they saw their ability to get out of it in March of this year with that price war, that's why it was. They knew it was a mistake. It takes a disaster to get out of it. They're out, they're out of it. They won't go back to it. The only reason they cut is because Trump made them. They don't want to do it. Um, but I think the key issue is what does this industry look like on the backside of it? You've got too many producers that have no business producing oil. The returns just don't justify it. Jeff, in, in that regard, if you look at the way the aid has been passed out by in, in the CARES Act and by the Main Street Lending and things like that, it seems to be designed to miss the energy industry. Um, and, and that's a, an issue which I think is going to get joined here 
by the people like Tom and others in, in the industry that that uh, we're managing to create craft a bunch of of relief for all other industries which have seen their demand cut by 50% except for the small independents. So I think that political battle is about to begin. Yeah, you know, I, I can may offend a lot of people on this call, but I'm going to say that the returns on those bonds were terrible. There's only yeah. one of them that got bought, and surprise, surprise, it was Continental Resources. Um, everything else was missed. Um, in terms of thinking about about the sector more broadly, you know, I, I look at this, and I've been doing this for almost three decades, and I can't get any investor to look at this sector. The main reason they won't look at this sector, the returns are abysmal. It has nothing to do with ESG. It has nothing other than just poor returns. The reason why it has poor returns, you have too many companies that are producing oil at loss-making returns and have been doing it for too long. And I just do not think at this point in time, people are going to stand back and let it happen. I mean, the main reasons the Saudis could not do that international IPO in December is no no portfolio manager wants anything to do with this industry right now. And that needs to change returns. My understanding is Exxon was would fight tooth and nail to prevent any more subsidies to this industry. They're one of the big players of it. They're going to be the, they're going to have the same view as, as a, um, a Saudi Arabia, Rosneft, or any of those very large players. Um, and part of the reason why is they want to see the returns in this sector back up to competitive levels. Here's a stat for you. Energy in the S&P 500 is 2.5%. In the 70s, it was like 25%. Even in 08, it was around 15 plus percent. The reason why it's so low is because the sector it cannot compete with the apples, the new, the, the, the rest of the the new economy, the old economy. More, by the way, this is not just an energy story. Metals and mining has the problem. All the old economy, manufacturing, all of it, the returns are abysmal. They need to be put back up to higher levels. And the only way you do it is you got to clean up, clean it up. There's too much excess capacity. And part of the reason why there's too much excess capacity is um, there's too much debt. And here's the reason why there's too much debt is because what can you lever in the system? Can you, does, Apple has a little bit it can lever. Dude, what about Netflix and the rest of the thing? They don't have debt. They don't have all of the things that you can lever up. The only thing you can lever up are real world things. And old economy has real world things you can lever up. Therefore, it had too much leverage. Too much leverage led to too much capacity. Too much capacity led to too poor returns. It's going to take a long time to, to get that capacity out of the system. And what we're seeing with the oil industry right now is you're taking that capacity out as painful as it might be. Returns are going to be great on the back side of this. Okay. Um, Van Taylor, Congressman Taylor, are you on the phone still? Sure, I'm here. I didn't nice know if you me. had any. I, I know you're, you're, you're in Dallas, right? So um, you have sure, you, yeah. a lot of your constituents, your, <laughs> a lot of your constituents are the roadkill, which Jeff was talking about. <laughs> Do you have any comments yeah. or questions on your mind uh, for him? Yeah, no, I appreciate the appreciate the energy perspective. Uh, my my community is more corporate headquarters and IT, uh, so it's a little more white collar. I've got I've got two energy companies to speak of, but just wanted to kind of ask a bigger policy question, Jeff. To you know, as as Congress thinks about next steps. 
there's sort of the broad infusion of capital. So, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the economic impact checks, right? So that's you know, $1,200 per person who makes $75,000 or less and 500 bucks per child. Uh, and then you've got, it's, that was about a $290 billion program. And then you've got uh, a sector that we, we gave about $150 billion directly to cities, to local governments to handle COVID expenses. And that was, so that's a second sector idea, you know, hey, let's help the local governments handle this. And then the third idea is let's do a, a sector specific, bail, bail, you know, recovery plan, right? So the airlines got about a $30 billion kicker. Um, and a bunch of different industries are, are, you know, trying to find their room at the trough, trying to say, hey, you should help us recover. What is hospitality, restaurants, travel, or what have you. As as Congress thinks about those three choices, right? And those are, you know, three, three choices that we're thinking about. What do you think is the most productive? Um, I think the, protecting industries and balance sheets so that they'll be in a good place on the backside would be obviously, I think, the third, helping out those industries and making sure those people remain um, funded over that time period would probably be long run most beneficial. Uh, you know, if anything, it's probably been overkill on the on the individuals. You want to make sure you have a safety net for, for the individuals. But I think the biggest concern here, the long lasting, the two things you want to avoid, you want to avoid the second round effects of loss and demand. We're losing the supply of all of these services. You want to make sure that the people still have their paychecks, they can still buy things, and so you don't get the second round effects of the demand loss in demand, um, which is what the, the first two programs you talked about. The third program is protecting balance sheets of those that are getting hit the hardest. Because if the balance sheets are damaged, then you have a long-lasting problem. By the way, the debt problem and everything like that that the government gets, we can deal with. By the way, I have to say, and I want to say congratulations to, to you guys for, for doing it, the speed of at which it was dealt with was shocking. I, I'm here in Europe, you know, they're, they're still picking their noses over here trying to figure out what to do. Um, so I just congratulations and incredibly well done on, on, on that. Um, and then second of all, you you went after the right area. So I, you know, I, I can't fault you. In. And by the way, everybody in the world is applauding all of you guys for having done this. Um, while in Europe right now, they're, they're debating whether to do guarantees or grants. And we, they, you guys just went straight to the grants. You didn't mess with the guarantees. Um, so by not messing around, you're assuring you're not going to do the permanent damage. We can deal with the Treasury having the debt problem. There's a lot of ways to deal with that. You do permanent damage to the balance sheets or you, do, you get a second round effect of the inability to spend. You got a problem on your hands. The reason why, why Europe can sit around and, and, and is they do have a different safety net. Their, their unemployment problem is not the same as it is in the U.S. because the, gov the companies can't, they don't fire. They've got a huge safety net. So they aren't going to lose the, the employees and get the demand damage. Their problem is going to be damage to the balance sheets. And that could be very long lasting and very damaging. Um, and it is a concern over here, but they don't have that first. So the fact that your first point you made was, hey, protect the paychecks, you protect the de demand, demand damage. The other one is protect the industries and then protect you know the balance sheets, um, both of which you've done. So you know I think you know I I can't fault you anyway. I think you know the rest of the world investors I talk about everywhere in the world, whether it's in Asia, Europe, are just applauding you guys for having done a great job on this. So 
um, you know, just hopefully that, that this is all that needs to be done and that we do see it come back rather quickly. I, I think Rick, Rick, Richard Davis, I think, is next, and then John Martin. Hi. Uh, my question in part was answered because it was really focused on this issue of the inflationary pressures created by devoting so much of the resources to individuals who might spend more. And you answered it in, in the earlier question about why isn't that just income substitution where the public is paying money that companies were going to pay? But how does, do you think my play into, I've been reading articles in the last day or so that a lot of this quote unquote temporary unemployment, there's a significant percentage may, is a real risk is to turn into you know, long-term unemployment as sectors face particular issues. And then if there's, and the absence of further resources for state and local governments, if state and local governments, and I should say, not just in blue states, but in red states where the economy has been hit and they rely on the sales taxes, um, if they have to cut back employment. So how do you think that plays into the issue of uh, inflationary pressures creating by money going to individuals? You know, again, even it, it, it's too hard to understand what that second round effects are. Again, you want to avoid the inflation would be a good problem because we know how to deal with it on the backside. Um, but the, it's a question about how long this goes on. And if you've done serious damage to the balance sheets of all these entities that you're talking about, they can't hire. The only ones we know that are going to be in a world of hurt are the ones, you know, that, that Van had to discuss. There's going to be the, the leisure and travel, the restaurants, the, 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 the airlines. Those are the ones that have been dumped a lot of money, and they're being protected around the world at this point because they do know that's the one that leaves the scars and the lasting damage that you can't get yourself out of. Um, so because I think it's just so well understood that you cannot let those industries falter because if those people can't get back to work, We'll have a overhang here that's going to be lasting for a very long time. But the speed at which this was dealt with um, in the U.S., um, I'm, I, you know, I, 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 most economists you talk to out there, I'm not a macro guy, I'm a micro guy, but most of the macro people that I talk to, they're not worried about at this point right now of, you know, some lasting scar, which is why the, the, the idea of a V-shaped, it really looks U-shaped when you do it on a year-over-year -year basis. But, you know, at this point right now, um, you know, I'd say that the concerns, look where the stock market is trading, um, you know, look how the, the risky assets out there, they view it as being a positive. I, the biggest thing that I'm dealing with with investors right now, they're worried about a second wave of this. In fact, when I deal with corporate clients, they don't even bring up the word second wave. All the investors are obsessed with a second wave. You get a second wave, then these issues all start to come to the forefront. And I think the reason why the investors are, they're looking at these assets, they're relatively rich in value, they haven't priced in a second wave. That's what would get these, these fears that you just brought up as being, I think, first order. Okay, John Martin. Thanks, this is a, uh, Jeff, thanks for your insights. Fascinating conversation as, as many of these have been. Um, this is a little bit, I think this is actually a little bit of a follow-up to Richard's question. You know, one of the biggest factors in your oil, oil equation, as you have described it to us, is a fairly rapid return on the demand side. And I'm just wondering what it is that convinces you that 30 million unemployed people in the U.S. are going to be able to return to the workforce so, workforce so quickly. What we've seen in China. And 
when we look at the, the recovery in China, construction, manufacturing, and infrastructure, those three sectors powered back really quick. Um, and one of the reasons why is because you can do it with social distancing measures in place. Like we think in the U.S., by the time we get to the end of May, autos will be back up to 70% of capacity um, versus somewhere around 2025 right now. Um, and we've, we've seen it in China and they can do it and they are able to con control by not getting the second wave. By the way, they've been very good at eradicating any types of relapses that, that they've seen. By the way, China was a perfect prediction on the way down when we used the Wuhan prototype on the way down and we're using it on the way up. Um, and yes, things like consumer goods and services lagged, um, but it's not the, you know, it's things like leisure that are hurting, restaurants that are hurting. You can see even in the TomTom Tom data, people are not going to the cinema and they're not doing these kind of things. Kids are not going to swim lessons. That is going to happen. But, you know, if you look at the, and again, I think, you know, I, I don't know if, if Van and those guys were studying China like we've studied China, but clearly they knew those are the ones you've got to go in there and subsidize because we now see in China that that group is the one that's, that's hurting the most. So I would tend to, I'm comfortable that if China was such a good forecast on the way down, it should be a fairly good forecast on the way up. Hey, um, Andrew Brickman. Yeah, thanks, Howard. Um, thanks, Jeff. This has been a very interesting chat. You know, a lot of businesses make their money at the margin. And um, based on a couple of things you've said, um, I'm just challenging the assumption we get back to consumption levels, kind of in a follow-up to John's question. You know, it seems like the incremental airline flight will not be taken. Um, as you look at the airlines, they're actually using this moment to ground a lot of planes, upgrade fleets, get more efficient. And I, I don't think the size of their fleets are going to be nearly the same. And I think one thing we're seeing with, um, you know, unintended consequences, a lot more people are going to find out that they don't need to commute quite as much and they can work um, remotely. Um, I would see both of those as um, not demand drivers, but lagging, um, creating a lag in demand. I, I don't know if they're significant enough, and I don't know if I, uh, I'm overrepresenting them in the equation, but I'm just curious to your thoughts. Um, if we go to the, let's say that, again, let's say, I'm gonna give you the China numbers. Demand at its trough was down 25%. It's now down 5%. That part you just described is the part that's not coming back. So you got 80% of the losses back. So when we look at it globally, now let me give you the numbers. You have 8 million barrels per day of commuting, 8 million barrels per day of industrial, and 8 million barrels per day of jet. So that's 24. The global market's 100 million barrels per day, so it's just like China, down 25 at the, you know, on average at the trough. Um, you got back all the industrial. By the way, that industrial component, I'm really comfortable in that it's gonna come back just like China. And you got back the commuting because people, we got all the commuting. People in China are only commuting two and a half to three days a week. But the reason why you get it all back is people don't take the trains and they don't, um, they don't do public transport. The jet, you're not getting really any of it back right now. Um, the leisure, the minute you open up the floodgates on the leisure, we saw this in Wuhan, they, they run out of the city. My wife is yelling at me. She wants to go to Ireland this weekend. So if we get any type of possibility, we're out of here. 
Um, and I can tell you, I think anybody who can do leisure will do leisure. I'm not afraid to get on those planes and I don't think anybody is, but I can tell you right now, I do these zoom calls. Um, you know, I start in the morning at Moscow and I finish the night in LA. I'm not getting on a plane and going to London to LA again, and I'm not going to fly to Moscow again. Um, you know, I can do the zoom just as good as everybody on this call. I don't think any of that stuff's going to come back. Um, you'll have, the only thing that's difficult is how do you bring new people into the fold? Um, which means you'll have to do some travel, some here and there, but you're, I don't think we'll ever go back to the, the, I think we all figured out these zoom calls work just fine. And I think that you're, you're absolutely right. There's a structural loss there, but how big is it? Let's take the 8 million barrels per day of jet. Let's say half of its leisure. You're going to keep that. Then maybe you keep one third of the of the business travel that means you're losing two million barrels per day on a hundred million barrel per day market it's not the end of the world jeff that's been terrific um i think i think it's been as i said i've never had a, a conversation with you where i don't come out having learned something uh, this one i'm actually coming out a little bit more encouraged than i was before it i heard the number 55 i heard the number 70 I like both of those numbers, <laughs> and the sooner the sooner the sooner I see them, the better. But I want to thank you for a, a conversation which was heavy on data and heavy on analysis, which are you know the hallmarks of what should drive you know public policy in this country. And no labels, which we've all discovered is a is a public policy oriented institution focused on getting to the right answer in a nonpartisan way. And there's no better way to get to the right answer than to be heavy on data and heavy on analysis. So I want to thank you for for your um, your instruction, as it were, and um, particularly particularly on the comment that you made at the very beginning, which this group has to focus on, is the balance between health and the economy. Uh, and your comment that we may have gone too far in one direction versus the other is at variance with with a lot of stuff which we're hearing from the public health people who having gotten us to flatten the curve now want us to eliminate the infection. And that debate, I think, is going to be an interesting one to follow for the next few weeks as people begin to open up or not. Dr. Curry explains how the recent pandemic has caused a drop in oil prices 10 times larger than the drop experienced during the 2008 recession, and for understandable reasons. Oil enables globalization and facilitates social contact two things this pandemic has inhibited the most. Dr. Curry believes the industrial need for oil will return as economies reopen, as will the need for oil to enable commuting. But jet oil needs will likely diminish as businesses realize the convenience afforded by video conferencing. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.